1: And those elephants really look like they're enjoying the snow. And speaking of snow, it's time for our ACCU-16 first look at the weekend weather. And we've got a new meteorologist on the team tonight. Say hello to Stefan Spielberg.
2: Thanks, Kelly. Actually, it's Steven Spielberg.
1: That's what I said.
2: Let's take a look at what's right ahead of us Friday. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to look a lot like this. <laughs>
1: Is that even really weather?
2: It's my prediction, Kelly. I spent 18 months working on this one weather report, and I think I have to stick to my vision.
1: How about, I don't know, some reports from our team of amateur weather watchers? Uh,
2: They're all dead, but good news, Kelly. We've got perfect beach weather coming up on Saturday, so if you're planning to hit the sand,
0: let's take a look at what things will be like.
1: Blood? In the water?
2: Right now, we're looking at maybe 100 cubic centimeters of blood in the water, but but we'll be keeping an eye on the sonar.
1: I guess that's enough for our Accu-16 first look at the weekend weather with Sam Silverberg.
2: Steven Spielberg.
1: Whatever. Anyway, we could all use some good news. Coming up, a local librarian gets a bookworm tattoo. And look at those rescue dogs taking a break by swimming in a vat full of tennis balls.
3: There's a shark in there with them.
1: And after that, a terrific discussion of a wonderful filmmaker. And now the man behind Saving Private Ryan, the musical, Colin McEnroe.
4: So far the big problem with uh, Saving Private Ryan, the musical, which I've had in development for a while, is I can't uh, think of any songs. Uh, but other than that, I think it's, it's doing well. All right, so we're going to talk about Steven Spielberg, who uh, turned 70 last month. That seems kind of impossible, uh, but things like that often do seem uh, impossible yet they are true. So joining us today, well, we wouldn't dream of doing this without David Edelstein, who writes, uh, who reviews movies for New York Magazine and reviews for NPR's Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning, and is currently the chairman of the New York Film Critics Circle. Uh, I know this because I attended the awards with him uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, joining us also, Molly Haskell, a film critic and the author of six books, including the very relevantly just published Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk about Uh, the philosophy uh, that surfaces in Spielberg movies with an actual philosopher, a licensed, accredited philosopher. Um, All right, so Molly Haskell, we're going to begin with you. Um, I guess maybe the first thing to ask you is you could write books about anything you wanted to in the world of film. What's your relationship with the work of Steven Spielberg that makes you want to tackle his gigantic oeuvre?
3: Well, I didn't actually initiate the project. It's part of the Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. Mm -hmm. So they try to pair interesting writers um, with subjects. And they came to me, and at first I hesitated because I never have been. In fact, in my whole preface, I I give all the arguments of why I'm the wrong person to do this book. I wanted to sort of defang the critics and anticipate um, criticisms uh, that I wasn't the right person. Um, Partly... I said the two things. One is I'm not Jewish, which didn't bother me, and um, I could let others worry about that. I really believe that um, there should be no bars of ethnicity or gender or that sort of thing in in writing. But the main thing was because I had not been a fan, um, especially of the early films, and I had to set the context, which is I think David is probably, I know, is younger than me and probably came at them in a different way. But this was the late 60s and early 70s, and it was the time of the great age of so-called cinephilia, and critics were reading each other and fighting, and it was young uh, uh, American directors who'd gotten somehow gotten Hollywood money to make European-style style films. So we had Coppola and Arthur Penn and Altman making all these sort of dark and interesting films. And then along comes Spielberg with Jaws, and then Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then George Lucas, of course, so that it was like um, all of a sudden the discussion of movies was all about money. It was all about opening big and and wide distribution and the multiplex and the summer must-see film. And it it just seemed that we it was changing the whole nature of filmmaking and film production. So we were very hard. A lot of us were very hard on those early films. Um, but I think people recognized his tremendous talent. I was thinking when you were playing that thing from Jaws... Um, it's such an interesting film, the way it all came about and the way that the shark evolved. But I was thinking if it was made, of course, pre-CGI and what it would have been like, I don't think it would have been the same film at all if it had computer generated imagery. No, it would have been shark
4: would have been Sharknado instead. Hey, We, we want to uh, talk a little bit about how Steven Spielberg perceived the kind of critique that you might be uh, directing at him, particularly at that time. This is Steven Spielberg uh, speaking at a master seminar at the American Film Institute circa 1978.
0: From all the young people I've talked to who are getting involved in movies, writing scripts, really wanting to be part of the industry, uh, they are willing to... Uh, make movies that are popular and entertaining and not be embarrassed that the movies make money and not be embarrassed that Andrew Sarris or Molly Haskell are angry at them because their movies make money and I think a lot of the people I'm meeting today are not really as concerned with that as they are just getting people into theaters and hearing them laugh and scream and clap and all that good stuff
4: So uh, Molly Haskell, have you and Steven Spielberg made a uh, separate piece uh, with that particular critique by now, I mean uh, you know, on your own, I mean
3: now, I haven't met him. In fact, I wanted to interview him. I actually didn't want to interview him, but I thought I should pro forma ask, and he didn't, he wouldn't. He he has a policy of not inter- interviewing for biographies. Joseph McBride, who did a wonderful book, which I plundered mercilessly for mine, uh, couldn't talk to him either, but happened to talk to everybody else. But I certainly wanted to say up front how, how hard I had been on him and give him th- that retort. And I think, I know he's curious about the book. The only thing I can say is, um, I'm doing this uh, introduction at the Metrograph Theater on Saturday and showing one of my f- all-time favorite films, not just of his, but world fa- world-class world film, uh, Empire of the Sun. And somebody from the Metrograph ran into him at a restaurant a few weeks ago and told him about it, and he said, well, maybe I'll drop by if I'm in town. <laughs> he probably won't, but I think, I sort of sense from that that he must have read the book and be okay with it because it takes him seriously, you know, it really... I mean, I, I it is critical of, about some films, but I also, I think, um, I take him seriously as an artist, and and I think there has been a kind of his his reputation is it's interesting how it's changed and altered, and there are young people who've grown up with him who see him in a quite different way. I think.
4: All right. So, um, so many things uh, to talk about here. I will say that we will talk about Empire of the Sun, maybe towards the end of the show. It's also probably my favorite Steven Spielberg movie, and I think Jonathan McNichols, too. So, um, but before we get to that, David, I'd be interested to know uh, how you react a little bit to what Molly said so far, and maybe specifically to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I, I mean, I don't know nothing about nothing, but I actually feel that that is almost kind of a European movie. Hey, they've got Francois Truffaut right on the premises. What could be more European? But it's really about this man having this midlife crisis. He's having a nervous breakdown. You know, he can't sleep. He can't find any peace whatsoever. Uh, To me, it is this kind of restless, questing, existential movie that just happens to have a spaceship in it. But uh, I don't know, David. Give Give me your take on any or all of the preceding.
2: Well, yes, I come from the completely opposite perspective, of Molly, with all respect uh I thrilled I saw Jaws the first night it premiered, and uh I guess I was about fifteen, fourteen, or fifteen, and it just thrilled the hell out of me. I laughed, I screamed, I laughed at my own screaming, I screamed at my own laughter I had never seen someone who moved the camera like that. And I had seen Ophuls, and I had Mm -hmm. seen Hitchcock, and Spielberg seemed to me doing something that he was doing something new. And I always thematically took him seriously, even without realizing it. I always saw in his films, beginning with Duel, moving on to Jaws and Close Encounters, and obviously E.T., this struggle, this very lonely boy's struggle to find a dad or to figure out how to become a dad. Um, it's in all those early films. And uh, Close Encounters, you know, he's he's is about a child dad who really can't be a dad until he finds something, some spiritual deliverance. Um, I suspect now Spielberg would be rather upset by, you know, the fact that Roy actually takes off and leaves his family behind. Um, because uh, fatherhood has become much more central to his vision, but it was always there. It was always there. I mean, um, all you need to do is well look at look at Jaws, for example. What what he cooked up with Carl Gottlieb, you know, in the book. Have you read? Do you remember the book that uh, Peter Benchley wrote? The book is a sort of sour reactionary reactionary book he has in which, fair to, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. well, it's it's. Um, the the character of brody uh the the sheriff and and quint the the shark hunter are united against this effete rich uh scientist you know who has an affair with brody's wife and ultimately gets eaten and you know it, it falls to real men uh not not this you know fop yeah. to <laughs> to kill the shark um in the movie they switched it so it's it 's brody and um and hooper the, who are kind of against quint it 's it 's a satire of machismo yeah. and it 's and and Brody is afraid of the water and it 's about him kind of growing from a frightened child to to a to a real dad and that That kind of lays the groundwork i think for for this theme that has evolved throughout Spielberg, really climaxing in in I think munich and and Lincoln and And bridge of spies, in which he 's trying to ask, in the absence of god we or or we don 't know how God manifests himself in the world or herself um, in the the absence of that, how does one how does one be a father, how does one lead a nation, how does one raise one 's family and children, um, and yet hold on to that sort of precious childlike wonder, so in addition to the fact that he thrills the pants off me uh, as a filmmaker. I I've really enjoyed seeing seeing how he's evolved. The the big gap, of course, is how he portrays women. There's never been a really fully evolved, complex female character, I don't think, in any of his films. So it's well, very much a boy's universe.
4: That might be a, a, something we're talking about as we go along here. And there's uh, so much in what David said, I'm sure Molly wants to respond to. I just would just quick, would quickly observe that I think two movies from later in his period that are Pretty close together chronologically, AI uh, and Catch Me If You Can are also about these deep psychic wounds—the loss of a mother uh, and, and the belief that somehow or other you could put that nuclear family back together again, um, either by through the blue fairy or through uh, through just being a successful criminal, I guess. Something somehow or other, you know, you're going to get back what you lost. The, these these poor little boys who who are off on their own. But Molly, one thing I want to talk about a, a bit here because it's something that gets talked about. That a lot with Spielberg is the notion that that he has a vision uh, of America that is maybe the most pervasive and borrowed upon vision of America in popular culture of its day that in some ways he's almost an heir to Norman Rockwell you know that 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 the the childhood that we see in say ET it becomes kind of a template for what the quote unquote normal american childhood is i don't know did uh, tell us how you feel Uh, about what Spielberg is trying to sell us, assuming he's trying to sell us anything about our own society and our own reality.
3: Well, he said everything about me is in my films, and I I think that's actually true. I think he is. It it just comes right out of this intense emotion she has about family life and about the breakup of his parents, and I I do talk about that all the way through, and it's definitely talking about what it means to be a man in this day and age. I think he's also um, sizing him up himself up against his father who was in the war and I think he's very very aware of that I think the, the interesting thing about him is when he treats these figures he he does it, he's never satirical about men at war I think this is one of the things that appeals to me about him he's not he's not hip and sour and paranoid the way a lot of people were in in that era um I think it's it's almost the the benignness of it is what sometimes is a little overwhelming um, I, but I totally agree about that. I think that um, in Close Encounters, Roy is the, really the artist who has to thrash out what his destiny is. And and Steven Spielberg has said, as David suggests, that he wouldn't make that now. He wouldn't make a movie in which a father leaves his family anymore. But it's kind of interesting that he did make it at one time. I, I think all of that's fascinating. Um, I think um, the he gets darker. I think What one of the uncanny things, I think one one thing about him is he's always somehow in, in some uncanny way in tune with what's going on in America. And I don't think he's just sitting down trying to figure it out. But Minority Report, he was working on that when 9-11 happened. And it was right after 9-11 that we had this hyped up security. And and th- there he is in Minority Report with the precogs keeping tabs on everybody on crimes before they're committed. So, I mean, it, t- it totally it coincided to such an extent that he felt compelled to say that he believed in the measures George Bush... He didn't want to see him unpatriotic. He believed in the measures George Bush was taking. But I think he's, he is very aware of that. And I think he's become more, um, it's not, mostly to the good, sometimes not, more a sense of responsibility. I think it's having children now that he feels... He owes the country something he owes. I mean, Amistad, which I think was very unfairly overlooked. Who is he to make a a movie about blacks? The same thing happened with The Color Purple. But I think both of those are very feeling in their portrayal of blacks and, and, and their plight. So I think he's kept up with what's going on in the country without without necessarily making mess fortunately not making message films but and i think part of it is just intuitive i just think he's always been in tune It's what david said i mean you know he was very much an outsider he was a jewish kid who didn't know what that meant because he was living in his parents were sort of assimilationist and living in gentile neighborhoods so i mean in new jersey all the kids were catholic and celebrating christmas and they were accusing him of of killing jesus and you know, that kind of thing so He he was very um, wounded and and uncertain about what his Jewishness meant, plus the terrible tension between the parents. And all of that, I think, feeds his films, that sense of being an outsider, um, of not fitting in, and that's what is so appealing. And also, when you think of science fiction, generally, traditionally, has been completely escapist. He did something that, that really nobody else has done, at least certainly not to that extent, of bringing the family. I mean, generally, science fiction is... It's what guys love. It's an escape from family. It's an escape from love story. You know, it's mm-hmm. all, of the, all of those hey, sticky I, emotions. I, I just
4: want to stop you there. And, I, I, something I want to sort of, I don't want to uh, miss this because it's a really interesting point because, uh, David, one thing that I, based on what Molly saying, I'm thinking you know, 93 is an interesting year. He releases Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Schindler's List is kind of the moment where he you know, really as a total auteur, he does, I think, everything on that movie, you know, deals with some of the, the things that Molly's talking about right now, but now I'm about to kick a third rail here, and David, I know you enjoy third rails. Uh, which is, can we make anything of the fact that at that from there on in it feels like he gets a little waspier. Instead of Richard Dreyfus, it's Tom
2: Hanks. You know that yeah. that um, that there's a No, we a, certainly can go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that we, third we certainly can. then well, the Norman Rockwell thing is is a little troubling. I would argue that E. T. Is a critique of suburbia in certain ways. The, the loneliness, and, and this comes out in the film he produced too, Poltergeist. Oh, I was
3: just saying, Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah, where
2: there are. You know, where the fact that, that, you know, people are are close enough together to use their remotes on one another's televisions is somehow – and it's very ahistorical. The whole Indian graveyard uh, cliché now, Mm -hmm. the fact that this suburb replaces what once was sacred land, there is a critique of suburbia and the loneliness of the main character in E.T., I think is, you know, the, this this creature comes, comes in answer to his spiritual longing. So, but yeah, I mean, with Saving Private Ryan, with Schindler's List, there is a kind of, it is, this is very much about, I mean, in response to 9-11 directly, he made War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. which is about a father who triumphs over this alien invasion, who somehow holds his family to the point of absurdity. I think it's a great movie, but I also think it's also kind of laughable, the way this guy, you know, basically his only objective is getting his children to his estranged, to his ex-wife in, in Boston. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, and and I, the last part of Saving Private Ryan is deeply boring to me, and and some of the other things are... Well, as he's, as he's looked for a father for our country, uh, you know, building up to, to Lincoln and Bridge of Spies, there there is something a little waspy, if you'll pardon me, and boring about it. I think one of my fa- – well, Jaws is one of my ten favorite films of all time. But one of my other favorite films of Spielberg's is Munich. And Munich is the only time working with Tony Kushner in which he's really ended – a film on a note of absolute despair. Mm. Here is a man who has carried out this job for this horrible job that has killed his colleagues and has happened in a somewhat moral vacuum. And he is looking for spiritual guidance. He is begging this character played by Jeffrey Rush to come home and break bread and and do shabbos with him and his family. He is begging him, and Jeffrey Rush kind of sneers and walks away. And there is a, there is an incredible void there, a lack of this lack of a father figure, um, that that ends the night. It's the only time Spielberg has done that. I I wish I wish he actually did it more. Final point. Final point. That year that you were talking about, ninety three, Spielberg was in a way maybe too good, too good when he started off. He was too smooth. He was too fluid, and as he began to get more money and to kind of build his own sets um there was something about his fluid technique um you know with this fake universe that he would create and well hook was the worst of them but even indiana jones and jurassic park there was something that became i don't know it was it, it sort of everything sort of went too much in the in in the same direction like i loved his technique When the settings were more real, were grittier, and there was a real tension there between this very fluid technique and the real world. You get that in Jaws. You get that, actually, if you look back in Close Encounters in E.T. And there was a point where he expressed some longing for – Molly, what's the name of that – Manifesto that Lars von Trier. Oh yeah, uh, dogma. Dogma. Dog, dogma. There was a there was a time when he actually it was right around there, the early nineties, when he was getting bored with his own technique, and I think he was longing to make a dogma film. They had this rigid thing where you couldn't use a music source uh, that you didn't see, mm-hmm. and you had you couldn't use special effects. He kind of wanted to get back in touch with that reality, and and there was a there was a there was a turn not you know i'm not talking about schindler's list in particular but after that I really see an attempt on Spielberg's part to get more real.
4: Um, first of all, I have yeah. to do a shout-out to a couple of people back here on the home turf. Uh, first of all, John- Jonathan McNichol, a long, long time ago, who, who, Jonathan, who produces uh, this episode today, uh, said that every Spielberg film is to something, except for jobs, which isn't to anything. But it. So listening to David use that word T-O-O so many times, I'm giving uh, some a nod. And then I have to tell you, David, I saw War of the Worlds with Bill Curry. And as we walked out, of course, I'm thinking, should I use the bathroom here? can I get home in time Curry is explaining to me the whole thing uh, uh, about 9-11 and how this is uh, basically one of Spielberg's two responses to 9-11 so so, well you know maybe uh, Molly we can end this segment with a reaction to that notion that every Spielberg film is to something because that's another critique of him right that whatever he does he does it so well he does it to a kind of excess that
3: well that's too smooth or too epic or too too polished or too this i wouldn't i don't think that so much is that there's usually a scene that goes on too long there's an underlining if you he would like in the end of lincoln he should have everyone he should have stopped when lincoln's walking out the door but he goes on it's a tendency to have to over explain or, or, or over emphasize an emotion but send you out positive, also to send you out with some hope. Yes, exactly. To a fault. Yeah. Yeah. To, a fault. to a fault, yeah. But I'm, I love when it get, when he gets harsh, too. And I think this is what is what I think also at the time of Minority Report, he was feeling isolated because suddenly he was this big mogul and he just was famous and he was getting blackmail or, 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 or warning, threatening to his family. So he was living more alone than he ever had done. And I think that... Um, it penetrates his films in a very interesting and, and sort of melancholy way. All right, That's
2: well, why, actually, the, wait, wait, let me just yeah, yeah. one final point. Minority Report is nine tenths a masterpiece, and the end and, of that movie yeah. is abs. He he has to end it with a I, good family. On, with yeah. a, With a with a good family. I mean, that movie should have ended. Darkly yeah. And sadly, exactly. that's what he was building toward. And the fact that he had to turn around, that he could not live with that, Mm-mm. is is very unfortunate to me because it is a tremendous and deeply expressive film.
3: Well, once a Boy Scout, always a Boy Scout. <laughs> I mean, that really is his really I think more than yes. Judaism or anything else, that Boy Scoutism is... is- where he was
4: formed, and, and
3: to the good, too.
4: We just did that Boy Scout show about a week ago. All right, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back with more of Molly, more of David, hear a little bit also about the philosophy one can extract from Spielberg.
3: This was no boat accident. Did you notify the Coast Guard about this? No. It was only local jurisdiction.
0: The left arm, head, shoulders, sternum, and portions of the rib cage are intact. Do not smoke in here. Thank you very much. This is what happens. It indicates the non frenzy feeding of a large squalus, possibly
3: Angemanus or Asurus
0: glaucus. Now. The enormous amount of tissue loss prevents any detailed analysis. However, the attacking squalus must be considerably larger than any normal squalus found in these waters. Didn't you get on a boat and check out these waters? No. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any
4: propeller, it wasn't any coral reef, and it wasn't Jack the Ripper,
0: it was a shark. All
4: right. Well, we, did, we thought we had to play something from Jaws uh, and we're talking about Steven Spielberg today. I will say I'm not interested in getting in a conversation about it because David will tell me I'm wrong. But uh, I actually do think that character is maybe the John the Baptist of what we've now come to call competence porn. You know, competence porn is, is these movies where we watch highly qualified, really smart people solve problems. The Martian is kind of, you know, the perfect example or anything Aaron Sorkin ever had anything to do with. I feel like that guy uh, there, the ichthyologist. Yeah, but he is, does kill
2: Colin, he doesn't kill the shark. Well, it's just where they're just getting going. See, I knew you would disagree with him. No, just, he doesn't kill the shark. I know, Ultimately, I know. Ultimately, his his fancy, his competence and his fancy equipment is not enough to do what has to be done. You know, it's, it's uh, he, is, he is one part of this triangle that Spielberg and Carl Gottlieb the screen give give Carl Gottlieb some credit mm. and and I guess give Peter Benchley some credit too he's one you know part of the triangle that they create the three different
3: types yeah. takes three different types of maleness or masculinity yeah. right. right
4: and so now we've tipped towards pure grim professionalism in the age of Sorkin <laughs> uh, all right so um, uh, I want to first of all explain who's on the show you're hearing uh, David Edelstein and Molly Haskell uh, David Edelstein I shouldn't have to explain to you anymore Molly Haskell a film critic and the author of six books, including the just published Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. Um, we also want to talk a little bit about. Um Uh, other ways you can mine these movies for their deeper currents. Uh, Dean Kowalski is joining us right now, professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin Waukesha, uh, or Waukesha I think you're supposed to say, and the editor of the book Steven Spielberg and Philosophy. We're going to need a bigger book uh, is the subtitle. Great subtitle there. So um, uh, Dean Kowalski, maybe we can just begin. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, when they look at books of this kind, and these books have now become kind of a thing, um, their initial response would be Spielberg philosophy what do those two things have to do with one another how do you answer that question
0: um that's a good question thanks for having me on the show um I think what what you have to do is is to take a look at at the film itself um and try not to have too many preconceived notions and just take a look at what it is that you're actually viewing and and if you find um, even somebody like Spielberg asking a philosophical question, well, then that should be you know, great evidence for thinking that he, he has some interest in that in that topic um, and then and then the issue becomes probably well exactly what is he saying and and, and how much is he saying, and does he have a view?
4: Right, so let's let's uh, pick a movie, and it's one that all three of you can discuss. Uh, the two of you have already discussed it. We're talking. We're going to talk briefly about the movie uh, Minority Report. Uh, and as we get ready for that, let's hear a little clip uh, from uh, Minority Report. Uh, is this the scene? Is this the Agatha scene in the hotel? This is the scene with Agatha in the hotel room with Leo Crow. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It almost seems as if Agatha is being violated or something. All she can do is keep reminding uh, Anderton that he can choose. He can choose. He can
2: choose. Every day, for the last six years, I've thought
3: about only two things. The first is what my son would look like if he were alive today. If I would
2: recognize him if I saw him on the street.
3: The second is what I would do to the man who took him.
1: choice. The others never saw that future. You still have a
2: choice.
4: Okay, for people who've never seen that movie, uh, it involves a not-too-far-distant future uh, in which precogs uh, are able to tell uh, what people are going to do before they do those things. An entire wing of law enforcement has been created to act on these very solid premonitions and rush in and save the day, uh, and yet hold the person uh, responsible for something he would have done if he had been given the chance. Um, And um, so— let's just talk a little bit about this, and let's talk very specifically uh, with Professor Kowalski about uh, – w- Dean Kowalski, where do you go with this? Where do you go as a philosopher?
0: Well, the, where, where I started with this is uh, I like to go all the way back to the source material. And, and because the short story is rather well-known, uh, at least Philip K. Dick is rather well-known, which then leads a lot of people to go back and read that story, the story itself is very philosophical. And so then, what I'm kind of interested in is, in what ways did Spielberg consciously change the story, so then that he could get at some of the ideas that that he wanted to to explore, and and by doing that, um, I think you have a way in to to the messages that he wants to express.
4: And, and what what messages? I mean, what messages do you perceive there?
0: Well, the in in that story. Um, I think two things come to mind first. The most obvious one is that the endings are different. In, in, in Dick's short story, uh, pre-crime is not shut down. Um, the, the main character, Anderton, makes some sacrifice to, to keep it open, um, but Spielberg, of course, closes it down um, because he thinks, it seems, that the risks of, of abuse are, are too great. Um, and then ultimately, it seems that that would be giving up too much freedom for the for the sake of security. Uh, the other the other important difference I think has to do with the precogs themselves. In the in the original short story, they're they're almost not quite human, um, and in the in the movie, Spielberg goes a long way, as he's prone to do, to to make the precogs out to be. Um, innocence people, people that that need protection, that that are that that are, are calling off for protection, and what happens then is that the precogs themselves become a sort of family, in a way, um, as as your your um, other discussants had had talked about today, um, at the end of the film, where they're, they're, the three of them are there together, and they're they're the, the twins are there and, and Agatha's there, but I think then that is kind of representative of some of the the values that um, Spielberg holds dear.
4: You know, I I want to go to Molly and to David about this. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of different ways you can watch a movie like this, Molly. You can certainly watch it. I'm sure Jeff Sessions will have some program like this uh, on board in the next two or three years. So you can sort of see this as, well, this is really what the state would love to do, make everything even tidier. Uh, You know, but you can also see it, uh, and and it's one of the ways in which Dean Kowalski does uh, interrogate it, as a meditation on fate and to what degree uh, are our destinies laid out for us already— and to what degree can we change them? I don't know. As you, with your critical eye, Molly, look at this movie, what what is it saying to you?
3: Well, I do think it, it, it's a discussion of free will and, and determinism. And I think although it gives a nod to free will, I think it's very pessimistic about, about it. I don't think it really does believe in it. I mean, I think it's an incredible evocation of all the ways and really sort of pre- prescient in a way because a lot of it wasn't in place then. But of our devi- how our devices know everything about us and anticipate our desires. And we, we've we turned our, f- our lives over to them out of convenience and, and, and pleasure. Sure. And I think that's what it captures. Also, this man on the run, which is a great theme. Um, it's in Ca- Catch Me If You Can and others that he's running and running and running. And I think that's Spielberg, too, at that time. There was, there's a kind of compulsion there. And somebody wrote that it was... Like somebody also, what would have ha- he's the he's the orchestrator of this of all this technology, um, and it's a beautiful scene when and Anderton is doing is playing around with all this video equipment, but also the idea of him getting shut out of his studio because because uh, Spielberg was having problems with Amblin and Universal at that time, and and he was losing his his base link to Universal. So I think um, a lot of that feeds into it.
2: But he. But the thing is that I
3: think you're
2: talking, as has been said, about Philip K. Dick's vision, mm. which Spielberg take, embraces for a while, mm. and then and then turns around and asserts the you know the supremacy of, of Spielberg is a is a liberal humanist fundamentally. Yeah. and he um, well he's a, he's conservative in certain ways, but but his politics I think are liberal humanism and free will and you know the the capacity to to grow and to change things and the ending which does seem so compromised and ridiculous in the context of what he's been building this philip k dickian you know universe um you know is is an assertion finally in the end of spielberg's uh kind of inability to to leave that vision alone his sort of unquenchable hope in the human spirit and in and in the drive to to be a good father really to take these children and to save them um from this you know horrible corporation that would Compromise our civil liberties and 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 seek to control our desires and our destinies.
3: Yeah, but what does it mean when all the stylistic um, brilliance and conviction is in the the dark view and <laughs> and the end view of the family has so little conviction? So yes, he believes in it. Yes, he has to end in the affirmative. But something in him doesn't believe it because well, otherwise it would I want to go. That, I want to go that, back that's, to that's well, his
2: controlling his that that's the the virtuoso filmmaker's controlling mm, nature, which mm. which is in this case probably. In in opposition, and is probably totally unconscious on Storborg's yes.
4: part. So Dean, you know, in a way this movie it's set in the future in 2054 I'm being told by Jonathan McNichol in 2054 but it, there's a way in which of course it's set in the late 16th early 17th centuries. I mean, you really are in fact enjoying a debate among uh, the Arminians uh the strict Calvinists uh, and uh, in your essay uh, the Molinists, right? There's a, the the uh, the rest of the Reformation brought up all kinds of questions about predestination If, in fact, you couldn't condition your election by God, if there was nothing you could do to either make sure you were a saint or determine that you were a sinner, what did you do with all that? And, and Dean, you're saying, really, he is exploring this in a way that at least it would be a great way to introduce a bunch of undergraduates to this question.
0: Absolutely. Um, And and in fact, I I have done just that uh, over the years. And um, the 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 interesting thing uh at first is right away at the beginning of the film he he gives you the case of Howard Marks um where where the precogs have these these visions of of Howard uh murdering uh, his wife and and her lover um but of course b- before it ever happens um, and so then that raises the, the, the question, well, if, if the future is now foreknown, then there must be now truths about it to know. But, of course, if there are now truths about the future, then the future is kind of locked in. Um, and that has obvious kind of connections to, to theism. Um, and and it was uh, and still is a topic that philosophers are interested in. Um, and so then what, what happens is Spielberg gives you kind of a very sort of realistic, albeit future, um, kind of a way to, to think about uh, those topics, um, is it indeed the case then that um, it's unjust to be um, punished in, in the way that um, the, the pre-crime team does? Because after all, they, they intercede, and before Howard Marks or, or any future murderer actually does anything, uh, that future is cut off, um, so no no harm is really done. Um, And then, of course, the the future murderer is punished just as a murderer would be. And so what what I find, again, fascinating is that not only is Spielberg kind of not really rehearsing but but, but sort of kind of going through that, but he also gives us some place new to go, this question of, well, why are future murderers punished just like any other murderer? Uh, furthermore, is it appropriate for um, someone to, to be punished for something that they would have done, even though they never actually did it? Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the one thing that I'm, I'm really curious about is Spielberg's view about why he thinks the more you know about the future, the freer that you are, especially when most of the conversation, most of the historical context is exactly the opposite, The problem seems to be that if God or whoever does foreknow uh, your future, then your future is locked in and you're not free. Um, And so then what what I wish – the philosopher in me – what I wish Spielberg would do then is, is kind of go into more of why he thinks that's the case. Um, of course he doesn't, but but thankfully then uh, I, I, I can do some of that for you. There him. you go.
4: That's how you get your book. Uh, Dean Kowalski, great to talk to you. Professor of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin at Waukesha. Uh, go Packers, uh, Sunday versus the Cowboys. Uh, and the editor of the book, Steven Spielberg and Philosophy. We're going to need a bigger book. Uh, we're going to need a bigger show to contain all the stuff that we want to talk about. We're going to take a break, come back with more Molly and more David.
1: I like that moving called always. recognition in your oeuvre. but Steven Spielberg, I even like always Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Harpo Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Drew Barrymore. Catch up on everything we do at WNPR.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to La La Land and wrestles with plagiarism. And now. Back to
4: Colin. All right, uh, with us, uh, David Edelstein, uh, who writes, of course, for New York Magazine, reviews films, also for NPR's Fresh Air and uh, CBS Sunday Morning. Chairman at the moment of the New York Film Critics Circle.
2: Actually, can I correct you there? What? I, my term has expired. Oh,
4: was there with the coup d'état? Were there jeeps? No, no, no. 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 We're,
2: we only we only do it for one year. So right. I did my pardons. I forgave. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> you know, Ben Stiller for Zoolander 2, and and uh, I issued my pardons, and I beat it out of there. So I would, I'm chairman emeritus now. I would love to see your list of pardons. All right.
4: Molly Haskell is a
2: film critic and the author of
4: six books, including the just-published Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. And, in fact, Steven Spielberg has just turned 70 within a few weeks of today. Um, Molly, you know, as I—, I as I was looking at the filmography, I was realizing that I'd seen almost everything because as an American, you kind of have to. Uh, and so I did. And one of the things I realized was I don't think anybody has made so many memorable movies with so little sex. You know, sex is kind of a thing that's in movies. You know, there's that whole sort of kiss, kiss, bang, bang thing, you know. Well, he doesn't, I mean, what's up with Spielberg and sex? These are very sexless movies for the most part.
3: Totally sexless, absolutely. And the one that he tried, was sort of tried, was always, Ways with Holly Hunter, and that she just, I think, well, I think it has to do with his growing up and uh, antagonism with his father, but mostly his mother and was like a kid sister to him, and he had two sisters, and then his mother was like a third sister. And so all the women in his movies are sister-like. I mean, Karen Allen in the Indiana Jones is very, like, sort of a tomboy kid sister. Um, he just never evolved in some way, to, to to grapple with adult sex but he knows it and he sort of said I don't do that very well and so he stays away from it so I think um people uh, there was one interview where somebody said well you never have nudity but the thing is he doesn't have adult uh, adults at all adult males and females at all but it's amazing how how great he's been without <laughs> with this huge part of life missing
2: he sublimates like mad yeah, is what he does yeah, yeah. but yeah. but it would i I mean it would be intri- i don't know I mean he saves it for his shrink, I guess, or maybe maybe it's unexamined in his life. It would be fascinating what a Spielberg. You see, that's what what Molly was saying. I'm I'm very taken with her point of view on Minority Report when she talked about how you know even though uh, Spielberg views this state with horror, the surveillance state. He is such a techie. You know, he has this George Lucas side to him that, you know, the probably the most passionate sections in the movie involve the technology and how, you know, in control this character is. And, and you know, I hate to use phrases like anal retentive or, or you know, controlling, but... But Spielberg, it's been very tough for him as a director. One of the complaints back in the day, especially coming out of that that wonderful period in the 70, late 60s and 70s that Molly talked about, is that Spielberg was doing too much. He was manipulating us too much. Right. He was telling us how to feel when, you know, Scorsese or Robert Altman or, you know, Coppola or some of these other, you know, really – Interesting American directors, you know, and, and European directors. We're not really spelling out uh, more ambiguity. It, there was yeah. m- more ambiguity, and Spielberg was just with the John Williams music. He was he was always telling us how to feel. He was always manipulating us. So there is this kind of, you know, it's very difficult for him to let go, um, to 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 just kind of be and let something un- unfold. He's, I mean, I guess Hitchcock is a lot is a lot like him although Hitchcock being Catholic was able to explore his own kind of guilt um, and shame. Well,
3: there's so much more subtext in Hitchcock yes. than there is in, in Spielberg. Everything is there on the surface. I think that's one of the things about it. I mean, you can go, go deeper and you just don't, you, you don't get anything.
2: Right. There's a lot of similarities to Spielberg's technique, that yes. fluidity and Hitchcock's and the real pres the sort of omnipresence of the director's point of view. But Spielberg doesn't really quite let he just doesn't let go he doesn't let go. Hey I've got one more thing
4: I want to ask you guys about we only have about four minutes left so and this is a much bigger conversation but as I kind of got ready for the show I was thinking there might not be anybody any director ever who so rewrote visual reality like re- rewrote the world that we live in in a lot of ways i mean you can sort of think about visual tropes from from movies of the past you know things that are that sort of look and feel different because somebody made a movie that way but you know i mean jaws jaws changed the experience of going in the water for people you know people just were a lot more worried about sharks disproportionately worried about sharks compared to what they should be worried about and and i somewhere somebody wrote you know you you see a, a commercial where there's a coke can coming in a spaceship, or you see something where a basketball player's steps make the earth shake the way a Tyrannosaurus would in Jurassic Park, and you just realize we are living in this visual and auditory vocabulary created by this one guy that, you know, so much of our world, I think, is recognizable through Spielberg movies. I, I don't know, Molly, am I, am I overstating well, his influence? An anna-
3: no, no, they had an anniversary last year when I was doing the book of Jaws. And during that summer, uh, there was an actual jaw attack, two little boys in in North Carolina on the beach. But somehow it it just wasn't as exciting (laughs) as the movie because... You know, like real. He has made real life. He, he has recreated real life at such an intense degree and such a terrifying degree in that movie that that the reality pales alongside it.
2: Who was it? Was it was it Hitchcock or Wells who said that Spielberg directed without the Proserpina March was one of the first guys?
3: I think would, Pauline said that. I think. No, no, no. Oh, she, she was quoting
2: somebody. Oh, she was. Uh-huh. I think it was Hitchcock. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that everybody had a had a sort of regarded Theatrical. the frame theatrically, but Spielberg could get into it. Those those water level shots in Jaws, those kind of immersive. You're you're above the water, you're below the water, you're at the water level. Um, the very subjective uh, use of the camera that that was pretty fresh back then, and I think that. And, and for some of some of us were really primally affected by that you know I had a the other day, I was at the beach in in I was at a beach uh the last year and and I did something kind of there was a shark right. sighted uh off off the shore and I I just couldn't resist I walked up and down the beach after after they reopened them going pip it <laughs> Pippet, come here, Pippet, Pippet, Pippet. <laughs> and one guy said, you know, very funny, jackass, you know, you're going to scare people. And I said, anybody who's is scared, that- an- anybody who knows what I'm referencing is not going to be
3: scared. Uh, well, you know, also, the, I'm, I'm, I'm actually less afraid of the water than I am of the highway. I hate driving. And I think one of his real masterpieces is that medium-length film he did for television, Duel, Duel. Oh, yeah. in which it, it's – Truck stalks a driver, and it's just brilliant. Yeah. You know, it's
2: that's, you know, it's the subjective. I think he really used a subjective camera um, mm-hmm. in a way that 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 even went a little further than Hitchcock at that point. And uh, he kind of took some of Hitchcock's vocabulary and pushed it liter- literally into into kind of new areas. All right, oh, so I hear music. He I hear music. Do sex.
4: I hear music. Oh. I think <laughs> that means we're done. I could listen. I could listen to you guys talk for another hour. I really could. And you've been fabulous today. Um, Molly Haskell please come back David uh, Edelstein you have absolutely no choice uh, and thanks also <laughs> to Dean Kowalski uh, yes it's like a Minority Report I've already seen all the other shows David is going to be doing with me uh, I know what the future looks like he doesn't really have a whole <laughs> lot of free will and thanks uh, to Jonathan McNichol <laughs> for putting this whole thing together The to Kion Wolf I may have to board. surprise you <laughs> yeah okay. I, something guess unexpected. That, I guess that does happen doesn't it alright thanks and we'll be back tomorrow with the notes we'll be talking about La La Land about which David and I also have our different Birthday,
2: happy birthday, Oh happy birthday to Steven Spielberg.
1: Don't get me wrong, Spielberg is a super talented guy, but it was kind of disappointing that he screwed up some pretty basic historical facts in Lincoln. I mean, getting eaten by a T-Rex on a remote island? Even school kids know that Lincoln was eaten by a T-Rex in a theater.